out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon. It is day 27 of 100 Days of Colin. And I'm feeling, feeling a little luck today. Because uh, this is part two, Anatomy of a Persecution from the Trial of Julian Assange, a story of persecution. Before I go headlong into the text, I just wanted to mention that um, at the tail end of this, there will be there will be some some news of elections, and so I plan on kind of camping out last couple days of Colin, hundred days of Colin, and doing some kind of armchair election coverage. You know, just just of elections I think that are meaningful, not necessarily to the partisans that you know you see in the boxes on TV necessarily, but I think some of the elections that I think are interesting. Um, so I'll be kind of you know grousing around looking for things that I think matter and are interesting to uh, to the unsanctioned citizen audience. So. Um, also wanted to mention that it is fall, so everybody's going to urge you to get one a flu shot or two the new uh, booster slash vaccine slash Omicron subvariant subvariant subvariant. And I think I have to I have to think carefully about what I say on this program, but I think most people have had it by now, and. Omicron is almost like a vaccine, and unless you are really, really weak and really, really in that special class of people that are at high risk, um, usually the elderly and people, uh, but if you're young, like under 30, uh, it is prognosticated that you don't really need the vaccine necessarily but just in case go see your doctor talk to them first everything must be covered by the care of a physician not a physician but the general prognosis is that if you're under 30 in America and in most nation states that are caring about the health uh, and efficacy of the vaccine they're saying if you're under 30 it can probably give you some heart issues possibly as a side effect so if you don't need that in your life, um, then go see your doctor and consult them about the mRNA vaccine. But don't freak out, because that doesn't help. All right, here we go. Part two, Anatomy of a Persecution. This is the trial of Julian Assange, a story of persecution. Swedish judicial persecution. Turning point from fame to shame. By the summer of 2010, Assange is at the peak of his popularity. Everything seems to be going his way that year. In April, he presents the collateral murder video at the Washington National Press Club. And at the end of July, the Afghan war diary follows with 90,000 field reports issued between 2004 and 2010. As the founder and face of WikiLeaks, Assange has become a veritable rock star, a man who dares to confront the powerful in politics and business and at the same time manages to overhaul the entire media landscape. In August of 2010 he tra travels to Stockholm to give a lecture at the invitation of the Swedish Social Democrats. He also intends to explore the possibility of obtaining a residence permit for himself which would allow him to establish WikiLeaks as an officially recognized Swedish publisher. The resulting status of a legally protected press organization could give WikiLeaks formal legitimacy and virtually unassailable protection under the Swedish constitution. This would provide the organization with one of the world's strongest safe havens for publishing activities, a definite game changer of decisive importance for the huge releases planned for the autumn and winter of 2010-2011 and beyond. At the same time, much is at stake for Sweden's political establishment, a small country of 8 million inhabitants, Sweden has in the past century managed to stay out of two world wars and the Cold War. After the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, however, the country rapidly gave up its traditional neutrality and became a de facto member of the Western security, intelligence, and defense community led by the United States. 
Come 2010, Sweden is now a close ally of the United States in Afghanistan and the broader war on terror. With a security policy that can only be described as subservient to U.S. interests. This development does not sit too well with most of the Swedish population, so that politicians constantly have to go out of their way to sweep it under the carpet. Let me go ahead and invite some more listeners here. Bum, bum, bum. Come to the show. Okay. So on August 10th, the U.S. news website, the Daily Beast, reports U.S. officials as saying that the Obama administration is pressing Britain, Germany, Australia, and other allied Western governments to consider opening criminal investigations against Assange and to severely limit his ability to travel across international borders. Without any doubt, having WikiLeaks established in Swedish, Sweden as a constitutionally protected publisher would put the Swedish government's transatlantic relations under considerable strain and constitutional protections combined with public sympathy for the organization would make any interference with its activities exceedingly difficult. So this is the background of Julian Assange's visit to Sweden in August and September of 2010, which will become the most dramatic turning point in the public perception of him as a person. It is no exaggeration to say that on the day Sweden issues an arrest warrant against Assange for the alleged rape and harassment of two women, his fame turns to shame and his success story into a story of persecution. Even more importantly, for an accurate understanding of the Swedish dimension of the case, however, these allegations cause vital Swedish supporters for the institutional establishment of WikiLeaks in Sweden to hesitate or pull back. Assange's Swedish resident permit is refused and the Swedish government's worst nightmare is averted in the nick of time. Significantly, as a matter of legal procedure, the Swedish allegations never managed to evolve beyond the initial stage of a preliminary investigation, where they were left to simmer for nine years before finally being dismissed for lack of evidence. Nevertheless, they sat, sorry, they set in motion a dynamic of vilification and arbitrariness that continues to this day. As will be de demonstrated in this book, it was the refusal of the Swedish authorities to guarantee us against Assange's onward extradition to the United States, and not the allegations of sexual misconduct that led him to resist extradition to Sweden and request diplomatic asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in June of 2012. Assange's escape to the embassy in turn violated British bail conditions in connection with the Swedish extradition proceedings. For this bail violation, committed only to seek protection from serious violations of his human rights, Assange was sentenced to 50 weeks in prison seven years later, and the only offense he has been convicted of so far. Finally, while serving that sentence, the proceedings began for Assange's extradition to the United States, where he faces a political trial and almost certainly a life sentence without parole. The rape allegations initiated by the Swedish authorities became the starting point of a sustained and concerted campaign of judicial persecution and a public mobbing that would systemic, systematically corner and dehumanize Assange. The resulting prejudice had caused even me, a mandated human rights expert of the United Nations, to carelessly swipe off my screen Assange's initial appeal for help. It was only in November of 2019, after nine years of extreme procrastination and arbitrariness, that the Swedish prosecution authority finally admitted to the lack of evidence and dismissed all remaining allegations. Nine months later, in August 2020, the final statutes of limitations came into effect, thus drawing a line under what must have been the longest preliminary investigation in Swedish history. Throughout the entire proceedings, Sweden never came up with sufficient evidence to press charges against Assange, let alone convict him of any offense. Throughout the entire proceedings, Assange should have been presumed innocent as a matter of law, and he certainly must be considered innocent now. In stark contradiction to this requirement, the aggressive bias and arbitrariness with which the Swedish authorities pursued these allegations, and then carefully ambiguous rhetoric they maintained, even when they finally closed their investigation in 2019, ensured that the rapist stigma would remain forever branded on Assange's forehead 
and prevent his case from being seen for what it is, a story of political persecution. My Investigation of the Rape Allegations My investigation of the Swedish rape allegations is a particularly sensitive dimension of this case because it concerns not only Julian Assange, but the responsible state authorities, but also affects the personal privacy and human dignity of A and S, the two women involved. In examining these allegations, I therefore had to adhere to particularly high standards of responsibility and care towards all parties. In principle, I consider all three individuals, Assange, A, and S, to be equally credible. As we know from numerous scientific studies comparing witness accounts, depending on the circumstances, different people can perceive the same events very differently. In my view, to the extent relevant for determining criminal culpability, the discrepancies between the respective accounts given by Assange, A, and S are by no means unusual or suspicious but fall within the normal range of various varying perceptions that could be expected to arise in intimate encounters between strangers, particularly in the presence of very strong influencing factors such as the clash of the women's admiration for Assange with the potentially impaired interpersonal sensitivity caused by his diagnosed Autism Spectrum Disorder ASD, but also the distorting effects of powerful third-party interest in voluntary media exposure. The comprehensive criminalization and systematic prosecution of sexual offenses of all kinds is of great importance and does not allow for any compromise regardless of identity, status, or origin of the suspect, and without regard to his or her political, professional, humanitarian, or other achievements or merits. Every allegation of rape and other sexual offense must be rigorously investigated, and every prosecutable case vigorously pursued, to a far greater extent than occurs now. Even in modern democracies, the prosecution rate for reported rapes is often unacceptably low, which speaks volumes about the level of priority given to such crimes by the responsible authorities. As will be shown, contrary to the public perception, the Swedish authorities did everything to prevent a proper investigation and judicial resolution of their rape allegations against Assange. In so acting, they demonstrated a shocking indifference to the rights and dignity not only of Assange, but also of the two women involved. Moreover, justice requires a professional and reliable determination of the individual culpability in accordance with the fundamental principles of due process, including the right to a fair and expeditious trial, the presumption of innocence, and the principle of indubio pro reo, according to which the accused receives the benefit of the doubt. Throughout the Swedish investigation against Assange, none of these principles was even remotely respected. As a special rapporteur, I'm mandated to monitor the compliance of UN member states with the prohibition of torture and ill treatment. Clearly, therefore, the aim of my investigation cannot be to determine what actually happened between Assange and the two Swedish women to speculate about individual guilt or innocence, or to express my opinion on the character traits or moral conduct of private individuals. That said, reconstructing relevant acts and omissions by key protagonists in this case may still be necessary for the purposes of my mandate, because the handling of these facts by the authorities allows me to draw conclusions as to their good faith and compliance with due process principles. For example, when contradictory or exculpatory evidence inconsistent with the official narrative is deliberately disregarded or even suppressed by the authorities, this may not prove Assange's innocence, but it is certainly a strong indicator for an arbitrary or corrupted proceeding. Official arbitrariness almost always constitutes a central element in political persecution and related ill treatment and therefore clearly falls within the scope of my mandate. All evidence cited in this book, as well as my conclusions, must be understood and evaluated exclusively in this light. Materials of a 
purely professional in nature, irrelevant to the outcome of my investigation, or where personal privacy is paramount, have not been included in this book, even if they are not disputed and are publicly available through other channels. Since I began working on the Assange case, I have collected some 10,000 pages of court files, witness statements, trial assessments and analyses, emails, SMS transcripts, and handwritten notes, as well as photographs and video. Despite my request, the authorities did not provide any reliable evidence or explanations. Thus, even official documents which constitute the bulk of the evidence should have been made available to me by authorities themselves had to be painstakingly compiled through other sources. The most commonly accessible pieces of evidence I obtained through my own research, whereas others were passed to me by numerous independent sources and through a variety of channels. Also, most key documents were received from several sources in parallel, often of varying quality and completeness. My knowledge of the Swedish language was uh, of great advantage in the process, although the four governments made sure to classify, suppress, and even destroy mo almost all of the detective evidence. They did not completely succeed in keeping the lid on their collusion and misconduct. Yes, Sophie. First, anyone who knows what to look for and has the necessary language skills will be able to find the most important pieces of evidence somewhere in the bottomless mem memory of the Internet. And very extensive materials have also been made publicly available by WikiLeaks and its supporter groups. Second, through freedom of information requests and related litigation, investigative journalists and human rights activists have forced the authorities to hand over thousands of pages that are not, or not in full, available on the internet. In most cases, however, these materials have been excessively censored, thus all but defeating the purpose of any freedom of information legislation. It would have been more honest to flatly decline a freedom of information request involving official correspondence, witness hearings, expert opinions, or internal memos than to hand over a pile of blacked out papers showing nothing but the document title, the date, and the page numbers, and to claim with a straight face that this obvious mockery amounts to anything remotely similar to freedom of information. Given that under current legislations, freedom of information requests can be refused only in exceptional circumstances. Public authorities usually prefer to hand over hundreds of completely redacted documents along with an invoice based on the total number of pages and to assert that any redactions have been strictly limited to what is required by law, a claim that remains unverifiable as it is unconvincing in the face of a heap of black paper. Even in mature democracies such as Sweden, the United Kingdom, Germany, and the United States, this widespread, clearly abusive practice is employed to prevent the transparency and oversight pursued by applicable freedom of information legislation, thus effectively suppressing the public's right to know the truth about the exercise of governmental power. This means that in investigating the case of Julian Assange, I found myself confronted with countless pieces of a puzzle, some of which I had received in multiple copies while others are still missing. Even now, therefore, I have no way of knowing with certainty how many pieces the whole puzzle actually comprises. The reason for this continued uncertainty is that the involved states not only refuse to fully cooperate with my mandate, as required by the relevant UN resolutions, but also openly violate their international obligations under the Convention Against Torture and other applicable human rights treaties. States are not allowed states are not only called to respond to all queries transmitted by a UN Special Rapporteur, but they are also legally obliged to conduct a prompt and impartial investigation whenever they have reasonable grounds to believe that torture or ill treatment have occurred within their jurisdiction to prosecute violations and to provide redress and rehabilitation for the resulting harm. With their blatant sabotage of my investigation, these states deliberately undermine my, the purpose of my UN mandate and at the same time demonstrate the lack of credibility of their own human rights policies. As a result, my reconstruction of the facts relevant to the case of Julian Assange 
may still have a couple of blank spots and on specific issues may allow for other interpretations of the acts and omissions attributable to the involved states, their authorities, and individual officials. Whichever way they are assembled, however, the available puzzle pieces always yield the same conclusive picture, namely that the trial of Assange is not about the rule of law, but about political persecution, and that investigation and judicial institutions, investigative and judicial institutions, are being deliberately abused for that purpose. Victimized by this abuse are not only Assange, but the two Swedish women. From the very beginning, their legitimate interests were systematically disregarded by the authorities, and they were ruthlessly exposed and instrumentalized for the purposes of a political persecution. The upshot has been that their public lives have been largely destroyed. They were made to fear for their own safety, have been vilified as secret agents, honey traps, and liars, and have received no redress for the harm so wantonly inflicted on them by the authorities. Two sacrificial victims of Swedish raison d'etat. The case of A. Assange arrives in Stockholm on 11th of August, 2010. As usual, to reduce the risk of surveillance, he will not be staying at a hotel but with private hosts. This time it is A, a political activist involved with organizing his seminar, who is offered to accommodate him in her studio in this Södermalm district in Stockholm. A herself plans to spend a few days outside the city and to return only on August 14th, the day of Assange's lecture. Before leaving, she hands the keys to journalist Donald Bostrom, who also welcomes Assange and takes him to A's apartment. But A returns one day earlier than expected on Friday the 13th, August, and meets Assange in her studio. The two go out for a dinner and then return to her apartment where A invites Assange to spend the night with her. During her interview with the police one week later, A will recount her version of events. According to the written summary filed by the police, A stated that Assange had tried to initiate sex that at his attempts were rather clumsy at first, but then grew increasingly demanding, and that she eventually allowed him to undress her, but did not want to have unprotected intercourse. That Assange initially held her arms and pushed her legs down, which prevented her from reaching for a condom. Eventually, she asked, he asked her why she was resisting, and when she explained, he agreed to use a condom. Nonetheless, A sensed a strong, unspoken reluctance by Assange to use a condom and immediately became suspicious when, during intercourse, he withdraws from her and begins to adjust the condom. Judging from the sound, according to A, it seemed that Assange removed the condom. He entered her again and continued a copulation. But when she reached down, she was reassured to feel the lower edge of the condom with her fingers. She therefore allowed intercourse to continue until Assange ejaculated inside of her. Afterwards, when Assange withdrew and removed the condom, a saw that it did not contain any semen, and she noticed something ran out of her body. A then became convinced that when he withdrew from her the first time, Assange deliberately broke the condom at its tip and then continued copulating to ejaculation. Assange himself confirmed during his police interview a few days later that he had consensual intercourse with A, but denied damaging the condom. He also said that he had no recollection of the condom having been damaged and that A had not made any comment to that effect, but that she first made this allegation one week later on the same day she visited the police station together with S. The morning after this first night at A's apartment, Assange gives his lecture. The first casualty of war is the truth concerning Afghan war diary, which had just been published by WikiLeaks. A sits next to him on the podium and serves as his press secretary during the subsequent discussion. In the front row of the audience sits S, a young woman with, described as wearing a bright pink cashmere sweater. She works in a museum in the city, is a big Assange fan, and has been eagerly anticipating the event. According to several witnesses and her own testimony, everyone wonders where this woman comes from and whom no one knows and whose appearance and manner do not quite fit with the rest of the audience. 
When Assange needs a charging cable for his laptop during the seminar, she offers to get one from an electronics store and hands it to him personally. After the seminar, she joins the large group gathered for lunch and comes to Assange's attention. They later spend the afternoon together and end up at the cinema where they touch each other intimately. In the evening, A honors Assange with the traditional Swedish crayfish party in her garden. A friend of A's later testifies that during the party, A told her that she had had intercourse with Assange and the condom had broken, albeit without accusing him of bad intentions. In the middle of the night, when the party is still going, A posts an enthusiastic tweet Sitting outside at 2 a.m., barely freezing with the coolest, smartest people in the world, it's just amazing. Dan Donald Bostrom, who was also at the party, said that A told him a few days later that she was proud as a peacock, that the world's most awesome man in, in my bed and living in my flat. The night of the crayfish party, they again share A's bed, although several acquaintances have already offered to host Assange in view of the cramped conditions in A's apartment. According to witnesses, A declined these offers, saying that Assange was welcome to continue staying with her. Johannes Wallström, one of Assange's primary contacts in Sweden, testified that he checked with A every day whether Assange should be accommodated elsewhere. According to Wallström, A had complained jokingly about her adoptive child's nightly laptop sessions in the bathroom and his careless hygiene but always confirmed that everything was fine and that Assange could continue to stay with her. The case of S. On the following Monday, 16th of August, Assange receives a call from S, with whom he had spent the afternoon two days earlier. They meet late in the evening and decide to take the train to Enkamping, near Stockholm, where S lives. I need to just do a sidebar here. At this point in Assange's life, he is getting more booty than a greyhound toilet seat. Good lord. The next morning at 9.40 a.m., A receives a message on her cell phone. Johannes Wollström asks her to please remind Assange of a meeting at the journalist union, which is scheduled for noon that day. During the subsequent questioning by the police, Wallstrom will read out the SMS correspondence directly from his cell phone to the interviewing officer. A text in reply, he's not here. He's been planning every night to have sex with the cashmere girl, but has not been able to find time. Perhaps he managed to do so yesterday? A does not have S's phone number, but gives Wallstrom her email address instead. Oh my god, this is reading like a high school ridiculous... Ugh. Wallstrom, her email address, and instead says that S works at the Museum of Natural History, and that's all I know. This correspondence suggests that in his conversations with A, Assange has made no secret of his intention to seek a sexual fling with S. It also suggests that A was not particularly worried about that prospect. It is midnight when Assange and S arrive at her apartment. According to S's testimony and her irritated text messages, two friends between... 1.14 and 1.43 a.m. Assange first wants unprotected sex, which S refuses, and then falls asleep after long foreplay. S is disappointed and complains that he generally behaves weirdly, but eventually falls asleep as well. Sexual intercourse occurs only later during the night, sometime between, sorry, before her next text message at 5.15 a.m., when S insists on the use of a condom. Assange accepts, albeit rather reluctantly, according to S's account. Where is everybody? On the morning of 17th of August, between 7.22 and 7.46 a.m., another text message chat takes place in which S expresses her annoyance at Assange's snoring next to her. God. Within the following hour, S leaves the apartment to buy breakfast and then serves Assange oatmeal porridge milk and juice, and then returns to bed with him where they again have protected sex. In an SMS chat between 8.42 and 8.59 a.m., this is so forensic. <laughs> S writes, clearly put out that Assange had been reluctant to use a condom 
and that he even ordered her to serve him orange juice and that he was snoring again <laughs> uh, I'm sorry her next message follows exactly 90 minutes later at 10.29am it is during these 90 minutes that the alleged rape is said to have occurred According to the written summary prepared by the police of S's interview after their protected sexual intercourse earlier that morning, both Assange and S had dozed off. After some time, Assange allegedly tried to penetrate S again, but this time without a condom. The police summary states that she awoke and felt him penetrating her. Immediately she asked him, are you wearing anything? To which he replied, you. She said, you better don't have HIV. And he replied, of course not. Ugh. Don't sleep with Julian Assange. The summary continues. She felt that it was too late. He was already inside of her and she let him continue. And I can't understand what that phrase is. She didn't have the energy to tell him one more time. She had gone on and on about condoms all night long. And she has never had unprotected sex before. He said he wanted to come inside of her, but he didn't say when he did, but he did it. A lot ran out afterward, quote-unquote. So it should be noted that under the domestic legislation and case law applicable in Sweden in 2010, Mere physical contact between the sexual organs of two persons is already considered sexual intercourse, regardless of penetration. That being asleep is considered a state of helplessness, and that deliberately exploiting such a state of helplessness to initiate sexual intercourse amounts to the crime of rape and cannot be excused by the victim's subsequent consent. Any form of rape, in turn, must always be prosecuted ex officio, regardless of the victim's agreement with such prosecution and carries a penalty of at least two years in prison. The broader definition of rape, which is enforced today, includes any sexual intercourse without the full consent of the involved parties, was not introduced into, this, into Sweden until the 2018 revision of the criminal code. The same applies to the newly introduced offense, negligent rape, so that in 2010 the crime of rape in Sweden still requires proof of the perpetrator's culpable intent. S's nocturnal text messages in which she repeatedly expresses irritation about Assange's desire to have sex without a condom makes it clear that he could not in good faith assume her consent to unprotected intercourse. However, the conversation between Assange and S reproduced in the police summary of her interview which ends with her letting him continue without a condom, offers no indication of violence, threats, or any exercise of power that could have precluded S's freedom of action or decision. Assange's criminal liability under the Swedish law in force at the time therefore hinges exclusively on whether S had been asleep and, if so, whether he was aware of her helpless state at the moment of the unprotected penetration. The only piece of evidence which can be considered to provide reasonably reliable indications as to how S genuinely experienced this incident is a text message sent by her to a friend almost 24 hours later on 18 August of 6.59 a.m. stating that she had been half asleep when Assange had unprotected intercourse with her. This choice of words leaves room for reasonable doubt as it excludes neither that S was in the helpless state due to sleep, nor that she was sufficiently aware of Assange's attempted penetration of the end that her freedom of action and decision was not completely suspended. Assange himself later asserted that S had not been asleep and consented to unprotected intercourse before it began. Just as in the case of A, particularly coming from a suspect diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, his own perception of events may be genuine without necessarily constituting reliable evidence for how the situation was experienced by us, but absent a confession, he must be considered innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, just like any other suspect. So, S's account of the events in turn was not transcribed verbatim, 
nor was it recorded by audio device or witnessed by a second police officer, but merely sum summarized in the words of the interviewing officer. Moreover, as will be shown, the police summary of S's statement was only read back to her and approved by her almost two weeks later on the 2nd of September, 2010. By then, Swedish authorities had already amended the text without S's participation, had seized complete control of the narrative, and had created an almost incontestable fait accompli by aggressively disseminating the rape allegations through the mass media. Within the past two weeks, her case had been, re had been opened by one prosecutor on probable cause of rape, discontinued by another for lack of evidence, and then reopened by a third who officially reaffirmed that Assange was indeed suspected on probable cause of rape. Thus, by the time S. was first asked to approve the written summary of her own interview, she was already under massive pressure to conform to the official rape narrative imposed by the authorities on pain of exposing herself to blame for falsely accusing Assange. Therefore, on the question of whether S. had been asleep at the relevant moment, and if so, whether Assange had been aware of her helpless state, her police interview cannot be considered as reliable evidence either. All in all, on the only points of fact that were decisive for Assange's criminal liability, there had clearly been reasonable doubt from the start. <clears throat> Objectively, in the absence of a relevant criminal record or a confession on the part of Assange, there was never any realistic prospect of successfully prosecuting him for the rape of S. Whatever may have been may have happened between Assange and S during those 90 minutes on the morning of 17th of August 2010, from an evidentiary perspective, the only conceivable outcome of indicting Assange for the rape of S would necessarily have been acquittal based on the benefit of the doubt. Taking a water break. Any other outcome would have defeated the presumption of innocence and the requirement of proof beyond reasonable doubt, two universal bedrock principles of criminal law. The Swedish investigating authorities must have been fully aware of their evidentiary impasse. Assessing the objective likelihood of a conviction is an integral part of any pro professional criminal investigation. It serves to prevent both the pointless squandering of public resources and unnecessary reputational harm and trauma to suspects and other involved, others involved. <clears throat> as soon as it becomes clear that, irrespective of the investigative measures undertaken, there is no realistic prospect of proving an alleged offense beyond a reasonable doubt, the case must be discontinued, regardless of the personal preferences of the officials involved. Accordingly, Chapter 23, Section 1 of the Swedish Code of Judicial Procedure states, a preliminary investigation need not be initiated if it is manifest that it is not possible to investigate the, the offense. The fact that the Swedish authorities continue to disseminate and perpetuate the rape narrative against Assange for more than nine years when the lack of prosecutable evidence whew, should have been immediately apparent to any experienced prosecutor and strongly suggests that other motives were in play. Two women insist on an HIV test. Neither S nor Assange have claimed that their unprotected intercourse triggered an argument or other disagreement. Rather, they joke about the consequences of a possible pregnancy. S warns Assange that Assange would have to pay for her tuition fees, and he suggests that the, the child should be named Afghanistan. But after they part ways, S's amusement wanes. She begins to feel mounting anxiety. Not only is she worried about the unwanted pregnancy, but also about a potential infection with a sexually transmitted disease, STD, most notably HIV. Her text messages show how her fear grows and her helplessness turns to anger. I feel totally used, she writes. I want revenge, but how? I hope the USA gets him, and I, I wish I dared to make money out of this. And again and again and again, overwhelming fear of having contracted HIV. Still on Tuesday, 17th August, 
S decides to get a prescription for the morning after pill, and on the next day she visits a clinic for advice. Swedish hospitals offer alleged victims of sexual offenses immediate and free testing for STDs. During the night, from Wednesday to Thursday, her text messages become increasingly distraught. Should she go undergo a four-week preventative HIV antiviral therapy? She wants her test results. Now, when S wakes up on Friday morning, 20th August, she knows the only quick way to get clarity on a possible HIV infection is for Assange himself to get tested. If he had been infected more than three months ago, it would already show in his blood. So, if Assange tested negative now, the probability of her having contracted HIV from him would be close to zero. She sends an email to A asking how she can get in touch with him. That morning, S travels to Stockholm's main hospital, Söd der Jokset, I hope I said that right, to receive strong medication as HIV post-exposure prophylaxis. The counselor at the clinic contacts the police and an officer speaks with S by the phone. When she tells her story, the officer explains that what she has experienced is not rape, apparently based on the clearly inaccurate assumption that the crime of rape requires some physical re resistance on the part of the victim. But S does not appear to be concerned with criminal law. What upsets her is the result of her HIV test will not be available for another three months. Then, at 11.16 a.m., A finally sends SMS, responding to S's earlier email. Hi, here is my mobile number, A. And so, the two women whose contact thus far had been merely superficial start talking, initially, by phone. They speak about their respective experiences with Assange and want to convince him to get tested for HIV. In her police interview of the 2nd of September 2010, S asserts that it had been A's idea to involve the police. According to S, A had suggested that they go to the station together and file a criminal complaint. However, they would not sign the complaint but only use it as leverage against Assange. If he then agreed to get tested, they would simply withdraw the complaint. According to S, at the time of this phone conversation, Assange is still with A in her small apartment, but he does not understand Swedish. Shortly thereafter, S receives an angry call from Assange. He says that A asked him to call S and told him that she, S, intends to go to the police because of an HIV test. S begs him to just do the test, explaining that it would take him a mere 30 minutes to relieve her from a three-month wait for her own results. But Assange allegedly replies that he has to take care of Guantanamo, of human lives, and therefore has absolutely no time for such trivialities. Don't have sex with Julian Assange. A veritable telephonic battle ensues between all involved parties with Donald Bostrom, trying to mediate and get Assange to take the woman's concerns seriously. When Assange finally agrees to take the test, but wants to meet S first, it is already too late no longer believes that he is serious and decides to involve the police to make sure he gets tested. With that in mind, S steps onto the escalator leading up to Clara Police Station at Stockholm's main train station. The police impose a rape narrative. According to S, she first enters the police station around 2 p.m. At the reception, she briefly explains her concerns and then agrees to return together with A at 4 p.m for a meeting with a police officer experienced in the field of sexual offenses. A is still at work and cannot join earlier, although the initial police memorandum indicates both women arrived at the police station around 2 p.m. vid 14 Titan. During the police interview of 2 September of 2010, S is clear that their meeting with the police did not begin until 4 p.m time enough for the police to give the matter some thought. Strikingly, when S first enters the police station at 2 p.m., the officer present at the reception seems to be keen to register a criminal complaint against Assange. Only 26 minutes later, at 2.26 p.m., while S is still waiting for A to arrive at the police station, she sends the following text message to a friend. I am with the police. The sauce 
slang for a social democrat meaning a and the sauce and I are pressing Julia Julian sorry via an assistant to go and get tested the police officer appears to like the idea of getting him while I have found no direct evidence that the police were notified in advance of S's visit to the station it seems to be extremely unusual to say the least for a law enforcement officer to demonstrate such an individualized prejudice spontaneously S herself has consistently emphasized both during her police interviews and in her text messages that she had no intention of reporting a crime but visited the police station only to seek advice on how to obtain an HIV test from Assange she had inquired by phone about a police service specialized in such matters but was told that such a service did not exist according to S after her visit to the clinic at Sotojusit she said therefore simply went to the nearest police station Clara police station does seem like a natural choice for S being located in the central sta train station serving Nkamping her place of residence however Clara police station is also where inspector Irmeli Kranz is on duty at the time a Facebook friend of A's with whom she has been in personal contact since at least 2009 mere coincidence according to A be that as it may, at least the initial conversation with S and A is conducted by a different police officer, Inspector Linda Vosgren. S recounts her version of the events. When A is sitting next to her, hears S's story, she immediately intervenes and asserts a similar experience of her own. She now tells her own story about unprotected sexual intercourse with Assange, claiming that he deliberately ripped his condom. Thus, no more than a few minutes into the conversation, the issue is no longer about pressuring Assange to take an HIV test, but takes a different turn, at least in the perception of the police. According to, the, to S, Waskren quickly comes to the conclusion that what has happened constitutes rape, and that she, Waskren, is therefore obliged to file a criminal report regardless of their consent. Revealingly, Waskren's internal memo summarizing her conversation with A and S focuses exclusively on justifying the opening of an investigation for rape. The women's original query regarding the possibility of forcing Assange to take an HIV test is not mentioned anywhere. And for Inspector Wasgren does not appear to have any relevance whatsoever. The women are confused, anxious, and reluctant to go along with the criminal report. But Wasgren makes it clear that they have no say in the matter. At the time, she also reassures them that there will be no inconveniences and that nothing will be made public until Assange is formally charged and tried in court. Waskin's memo does not reflect the women's reluctance and the legitimate concerns, but immediately rewrites history. In particular, Waskin notes that, from the beginning, the crime of rape was mentioned and that both women ha had been victims which is inconsistent with the women's version of events. Therefore, she, Wasgren, obviously decided to talk to the women separately and ask each one for detailed description of their experiences. While the decision to speak to the women separately is correct, of course, this should have been done from the outset. The reliability of mutually influencing witness statements has a notoriously short half-life especially in politically exposed cases that are influenced by strong third-party interests by the time that Wasgren decides to separate the two women they've not only discussed their respective experiences privately and come up with a joint plan on how to address their shared concerns they have also listened to each other at the police station and have seen the initial reactions of the police officer the suggestive effect which can hardly be overestimated in the view of their own sense of insecurity they know of course that they are dealing with a celebrity they are angry confused and vulnerable and they have also very quickly understood what the police wants them to say from their point of view 
it is still all about the HIV test, but the Swedish police has a different agenda. What follows looks like a hastily prepared choreography being played out according to the script, but much too rushed to assemble, sorry, to resemble a natural unfolding of events. Contrary to what her memo seems to suggest, Inspector Wasgren does not, in fact, bother to conduct detailed interviews with either woman, but acts immediately. Already at 4.11 p.m., a first criminal report for rape is registered in the system containing the demonstrably untrue assertion that S herself has reported Assange for rape. Conversely, S's real concern, the HIV test, is not even mentioned in the report. Here, too, S's declared needs and primary concerns appear to be perceived as completely irrelevant. All that seems to matter to the Swedish police is getting that rape allegation against Assange registered as quickly as possible, perhaps too quickly. The electronic timestamp on the criminal report 411 raises serious questions, not only because it is registered only 11 minutes after the beginning of the initial meeting between Inspector Wasgren and the two women, but also because it is not recorded in the name of Wasgren, but in that of Inspector Ermeli Kranz, who conducts a full interview with S after Wasgren's initial conversation with the two women. While it is highly unlikely that Wasgren could or would have electronically registered a criminal report in her colleague's name, Kranz's interview with S undisputedly does not begin until 10 minutes later at 4.21 and lasts until 6.40. Needless to say, in any natural sequence of events, a criminal report by Inspector Kranz would be filed at the end of her interview with S, and certainly not before it has even started. Unless, of course, the decision to report Assange for rape has been taken already in advance, and Kranz merely played out a plot predetermined by authorities who appeared to like the idea of getting him. The electronic timestamp on the criminal report for the rape of S certainly is yet another indicator that from the perspective of the authorities, her visit to Clara Police Station may have been less spontaneous and coincidental than it has been portrayed. A second criminal report is recorded at 4.31 p.m this time in the name of Wasgren, again containing the demonstrably untrue assertion that A had come to the police station with the intention of reporting Assange for sexual harassment. After her initial conversation with Wasgren, A returns to work without a protocol interview being conducted. With two registered criminal reports against Assange for sexual offenses, the police seem to have obtained all that matters to them. Collecting reliable evidence in support of these allegations appears to be perceived as a formality that can be taken care of at a later stage. To sum up, in both cases, criminal reports were registered by the police before the women had been formally interviewed, and in the case of S, before the reporting the police officer had even spoken to her. In both cases, it was falsely asserted that the women themselves had intended to report a sexual offense against Assange although this demonstrably had not been their intention. As if to cover her back, Wasgren detailed in her memo that she had consulted with various departments and that everyone had been unanimous that this was rape. Both women later confirmed that Wasgren had immediately made very clear to them that the alleged facts amounted to the crime of rape and must be prosecuted ex officio, regardless of their own preferences or consent. By confronting the women with their own judicial powerlessness and the inescapability of the official rape narrative, the Swedish authorities swiftly hijacked the women's personal stories and experiences for their own purposes. It seems that they wanted to create a fait accompli as quickly as possible and without the women's interference. A had just left the police station and S was still relating her version of events to Inspector Kranz. When Inspector Wasgren picked up the phone and informed the public prosecutor on duty, Maria Haljebo Kjellstrand, 
of the two newly registered criminal reports, the prosecutor, two struck immediately and at 5 p.m. issued an arrest warrant against Assange on probable cause of rape. No written report or witness statements required. No need for clarifications. No questions asked. Once the deed was done, Waskren entered Kronz's office where S. was still being interviewed and announced that an arrest warrant had been issued against Assange. Let this sink in for a moment. A public prosecutor issues an arrest warrant on a probable cause of rape against a politically controversial public figure solely on the basis of a phone call from a police inspector who has spoken with two women, neither of whom intended to report a crime, but whose real request was not even taken note of? Without any recorded interview with the women, with no other evidence, and no attempt to obtain a statement from the suspect, a suspect who poses no danger whatsoever, who is not violent, and who does not threaten anyone? Why so much haste? Because Assange is not a Swedish citizen, but he is a flight risk, and because he must be prevented from interfering with the investigation, the prosecution authority explains in a press release on the following Monday, 23rd of August. But then, if this was the case, why was Assange not arrested? Why was he left to find out from the press about the allegations against him? All we know for sure is that when he did find out, Assange did not try to escape but voluntarily postponed his departure from Sweden, which had originally been planned for 25th of August, by a full month and made himself available for questioning by the police and the prosecution authority. When S. receives the news about the arrest warrant, she seems to be caught completely off guard. At 5.06 p.m., still sitting in Inspector Kranz's office, she sends a text message to A to inform her of the news. She is shocked that they wanted to arrest Assange, S. writes, when all she wanted from him was an HIV test. In subsequent police interviews, S. recalled the incredible shock and confusion of the moment, explaining that she had never intended to file a criminal complaint against Assange, that the arrest warrant was far beyond anything she could have ever imagined, and that it was the opposite of what Inspector Waskren had promised, namely, that nothing would happen for ages. So she did not worry, but try to relax. At 6.30 p.m., she writes another text message, this time to a friend. Did I do the right thing going to the police? He has been detained, i.e., through an arrest warrant, and in his absence for raping me in sexual assault, I think, against the sauce girl. This friend will later testify that S. felt that she had been run over by the police and others. According to Inspector Kran's closing remarks in the protocol, after learning about the arrest warrant against Assange, S. can hardly concentrate. Therefore, at 6.40 p.m., Kranz decides to suspend the interview with her. S. leaves the police station without reading or approving the written version of her interview as summarized by the Inspector Kranz, the same police officer who had registered a criminal report for the rape of S. in the computer system before even talking to her and who six days later would modify S.'s statement without consulting her. At this point, right after the interview, S still seems to be desperately clinging to the original plan proposed by A, namely to try and prevent the opening of a criminal investigation by refusing to sign her own statement. Good. According to A's own account, Kranz is keen to question her immediately after S and asks her by phone to come back to the police station for a formal interview. A responds that she is already on a train to Uppsala and would prefer to do the interview another day. Kranz cautions that in this case it might not be her who conducts the interview. While A seems to prefer not to be interviewed by a police officer who is also a friend or an acquaintance, Inspector Kranz does not appear to perceive her personal relationship with A as representing or presenting a potential conflict of interest. In the course of the following weeks, Kranz repeatedly expresses extreme bias against Assange and social media which eventually triggers a formal conflict of interest complaint against Inspector Kranz to the Swedish Ombudsman for the Judiciary. 
in a breathtakingly superficial, naive, and self-defeating decision of 23rd of May of 2011. The Ombudsman dismisses the complaint, stating that the police and the prosecution authority themselves had found Inspector Kronz's conduct to be without fault and that, therefore, the Ombudsman has no reason to further investigate the matter. I need to stop it there. It has been an hour. Um, we will resume the reading of this chapter um, from the trial of Julian Assange, a story of persecution. Very interesting, like detailed play-by-play -play of how this went down. I certainly didn't know, and I certainly didn't expect the reading to go this direction. <laughs> I didn't. It was unexpected, but um, somewhat of an important surprise, because the details matter. They do matter. They matter, they matter, they matter. Because there's a there's a great big long distance between a a rape and assault allegation and please please ask this man to conform to his duties as a moral human being, help us out. And I guess the Swedish police are used in that capacity on a regular basis. Um, which is disappointing for those two girls cited in the story. So um, with that, I want to thank everyone who has been listening. Alex, Charlie, thank you. Um, I will be airing uh, the rest of this tomorrow. So stay tuned around this time. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast Archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Call-In. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com. <laughs>